how stunning it is to discover that time passes and nothing remains the same. To some extent, we know this from a very early age. We know we have to wait for time to pass so that we can get to the next birthday, the next Christmas, the next summer. We know that when we get to the next stage that some things are different. Our age, the toys we get, the things that we are capable of. But it all feels like an accretion, an adding, a building up, not like the loss that is concomitant with gain and that we know intellectually is part of the process. We must eventually find out that what we already know is true is actually happening. As time passes, it carries with it many things, some that we are glad to get rid of, some that we try so hard to keep hold of, and all treated with the same impassive equality by the passage of time. Do you remember Holden in Catcher in the Rye? He hated change. He hated seeing himself, a 16-year-old, and others on the conveyor belt into the life of adulthood with all of its disenchantment, loss of childhood innocence, and onset of responsibility. That's why he loved visiting the Museum of Natural History and finding the Indians in their huge canoe still in mid-stroke as they paddled to some unseen destination. He said, the best thing in that museum was that everything always stayed right where it was. Nobody'd move, nobody'd be different. He goes on to say, certain things, they should stay the way they are. You ought to be able to stick them in one of those big glass cases and leave them alone. A temptation. If life were a museum, we could count on some things not changing. Like Holden, we could drop by and visit our favorite moments and people, not just in memory, but in reality, frozen forever as if it trapped in some metaphysical amber, protected in the glass case. So many moments we are sorry to see pass on. For example, the magic of having small ch young children to care for. Okay, so this is a double-edged joy. <laughs> From the moment that bundle of joy arrives in the household, the parent's time is totally dedicated to taking care of the baby. Years pass, and not one trip out of the house, not one movie even, can be planned without consideration for and accommodation for the needs of the young ones in the household. Grocery shopping itself can be quite an adventure with restless babes, or bro broken eggs, or endless chatter about breakfast cereals. But the world shimmers through the eyes of someone who is experiencing it for the first time. And it's a true gift to the adults who get this second chance at wonder. And all the scraped knees and fears of the dark are nothing compared to dealing with a pubescent middle schooler. But wait. Isn't there something completely wondrous about watching the young mind begin to try out abstract thinking as it suddenly sees depth where before only the surface was available? So many exciting moments tucked in along the way to that apprentice adult that you suddenly find living at your house. Annie Dillard described looking back at oneself across the years as seeing a map with many contiguous dots on it, 
each one a separate person, but each one connected. This image perfectly captures the progress of our children and of ourselves, for at each stage, the person that appears is the same one as before. We know this to be true, for we don't believe in goblins replacing the young one with a changeling. But he or she is not the same as before. Such feelings of nostalgia tug at us as we watch the process, for we are stuck with one foot each in two tenses, past and present. What happened to the child I used to know? Ah, here's one that bears a resemblance, who knows the same jokes, who has captured some of the same memories, and whom I love just as much, but who is not the child I used to know. The young one is gone, subsumed by the similar person, vigorous in memory only. Regardless of our joy in the appropriate maturation, we are sad too, for we have lost something through the changes. Marion read for us the passage from Haven Kemmel's memoir, where she captures the moment of realizing that time passes, moment by moment, irretrievable. And she captures the feeling of how overwhelmed she was by that fact. Irretrievable is terrifying. It makes every moment a final farewell. And goodbyes are not easy for anyone. I remember being thoroughly distressed by the realization that someday even the sun would run out of fuel and would expand into old life as a red giant, engulfing the earth in its senescence before finally collapsing. Further thought brought me closer to home in both time and place. Even mountains wear down, continents separate, land masses appear and disappear. Eventually, as my reading told me, humans would either evolve to form no uh, evolve to a form no longer recognizable to me or would simply become extinct. My thoughts found the next question. If we're not going to last forever, what can possibly be the importance of anything we do now? In this context, this too shall pass becomes a terrifying threat applied to every state of being, geographical, physical, political, psychological, our understanding of just how much change had occurred over the millennia and how impermanent even the unchanging mountains and oceans are blossomed in our society in early, the early 19th century, which brought a bumper crop of discovery and exploration, things that made people of the time feel simultaneously important and small. Geographically, knowledge of the far-flung world became common, easily accessible, and that brought with it the knowledge of new animals, new peoples. Scientifically, geology and archaeology were opening up our realization of the ever-changing landforms and past societies. It was the early 19th century when scientific knowledge caught up with the dinosaur bones that periodically turned up, no longer thought to be the bones of some ogre or griffin, as the ancient Greeks had thought. These were the bones of some creature that used to exist, used to dominate the earth, and which no longer existed. By mid-century, Darwin was riding the wave, not stirring up one, when he published Origin of the Species. To the smug security of the civilized world, 
The realization of the changes dealt an uncomfortable blow, shaking to the core the faith that many had in the way things are. In addition, scientific explorations in Egypt at that point were uncovering tremendous information about civilizations once mighty, now all but invisible. If species, landforms, governments, and whole civilizations could pass away, what assurance could anyone have of the permanence of their culture's supremacy, or even the permanence of humanity? After monumental discoveries in Egypt, and as an affirmation of the truth about impermanence, Percy Bysshe Shelley, who was the husband of Mary Shelley, wrote this sonnet titled Ozymandias. And Ozymandias is just another, is an ancient name used for Ramses II. And this is indeed about the discovery of a statue out in the desert. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Yes, the very real statue that this poem was written about is vivid evidence for this fact. Nothing is permanent. And society was shaken in the realization. After the daily bombardment of evidence of impermanence on the personal level, death, seasons, growing children, decaying houses, being faced with evidence that even the stars are not safe from the ravages of time is at best disappointing. For well, one way we all have of dealing with the loss inherent in much of impermanence is to feel that on a larger scale, some things have been and will always be. But entropy rules. Everything that exists is subject to decay, to loss, to passing on. And do not suggest that the 19th century was the first time we as humans realized this, but it was a recent moment where our comforting layers of what we thought was truth were stripped away, replaced with truths that required a reassessment of ourselves uh, and of our place in the world. The myths, much more ancient, of every society recognized the presence of impermanence and devote many stories and rituals to accepting it. Jesus speaks of a time when all things that we know pass out of existence, though he promises that at the second coming, a new world, different from the world we now inhabit, will begin. The Buddha counsels that unhappiness comes from attachment, trying to resist change, trying to insist on permanence. Instead, he urges, let it go, since you cannot stop it from moving on. In Hindu mythology, yet more ancient, 
The universe is created by the Brahma who sits on the lotus that grows from the navel of Vishnu. Eventually, when the Brahma sleeps, the universe, the universe winks out of existence. The lotus blossom retreats and the cycle begins again when the lotus grows again and the universe is created anew. Both Buddhism and Christianity say this, that ultimately the world, the universe that we know, will cease to be, but that it is part of a cycle. This is not only an insight from the world's religions, but I think it's one of the reasons for their existence. For we ask variously for ways to understand the constant motion and for ways to accept it. When we are awash in the waters of our constantly moving river, when everything that comes to us moves on downstream beyond our reach, we are likely to feel unmoored ourselves. And so we look for ways to get our feet on the ground, ways to stabilize and control our lives because it is not easy. It is not easy to see the seasons of your life pass knowing that this is not a cycle that will repeat itself for you. This life we're living is a one-shot deal. It is not easy to have permanent relationships end, whether through death or disenchantment. It is not easy to enjoy a fine time of life when you're fit and strong, when the job is exciting and fulfilling, when relationships with your family members are smooth and loving, and then have that time pass. We grieve the loss. Perhaps we try to make it stop. We try to grab the river water and keep that patch of water forever around us. And then we have to grieve again, for we will have failed, and our hopes dashed for both the loss and the failure. When a friend is grieving a loss, we comfort them, promising that Time heals all wounds, and it's for the best. But even as we say these things, I think we all know that the friend does not want to hear them. For it is the time for grieving first, before it will be the time for healing. One must first have time to release what has just become the past, before he or she can fully embrace the present as the new reality. And it's not easy. But what if we could hold on to every state we pass through? Would that bring us the relief that we're looking for? There are, frankly, many moments that I find myself anxious to get to the end of. Here's the happy news about impermanence. Those two shall pass. <laughs> An illness, a boring lecture, a root canal, a terrible confrontation, pain. None of these will last forever. Many are the moments that bring us pain and our best hope for getting through them lies in the recognition of their transience. When the loved one dies, we find ourselves in such pain that we cannot but hope for the pain itself to pass away. In large part, it will. Not because we have managed to reverse the reality of the death or other separating event, but because the passage of time helps us to let go and because our hearts are capable of healing, sometimes with scars, but always healing. This is the flip side. We resent impermanence when it takes us from moments or people that make us happy 
and are relieved by its operations when it takes us from moments of pain or unhappiness. What then should be our relationship with and our approach to the reality of impermanence? Can we refuse it? Can we say, no, I want things to stay as they are? It's not likely to be effective. Very likely to make us even less happy with the change of things. Or should we rush headlong to create change, embracing impermanence with such open arms that we seek change at the expense of the current situation? The only way this can be effective is by artificially changing situations and relationships before they become important to us. In other words, refusing or avoiding attachments. The Buddhism says that all suffering comes from attachment I'd have to counter that all happiness comes from attachments, with the price of sadness to be paid at their termination, whether they end because of the passage of time or for other reasons. Or does the fact that nothing that we are or do, does the fact that nothing we are or do will eventually, will eternally ripple through the universe mean that we should respond by giving up, thinking that nothing matters? The answer of the affirmative would mean that we prize the future so highly that we exclude the present entirely from our system of values. I cannot think that this is an adequate answer. We live in the present, not in the past or the future. The present then, though it's exquisitely transient, matters, and we must live in such a way that we bring value to it. And so, our relationship with impermanence, if we're to reduce our own suffering and increase our daily happiness, will have to be one of acceptance, a graceful bowing to those things that are inevitable or otherwise beyond our control. With this in mind, release summer to the memory and greet the onset of winter with its onset of cold and dark trying to avoid it or hold it back or refuse it entrance has only the effect of making us feel regret for the summer, which is gone, and of making us feel the cold more deeply. At the other end of the spectrum, look with joy at the crocus that peaks above the ground and don't resist the awakening of the sun and warmth with its requirement of change and its eventual stifling heat. Let even Monday be a day you enjoy. It will pass soon enough. The time has come for the passing of the basket, for the giving of the offering. Um, we share our offering with others, and for the months of September and October, Half the offering will go to the Mount Kisco Interfaith Food Pantry to help provide food to those in our community who do not have enough to eat.